Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Romans. We're going to continue our study this morning in Romans 14, but before you turn there, I would invite you to turn first to Ephesians chapter 4. There's a passage I'd like us to consider there first this morning as I I deal with here on the front end with this continued theme of, of communion. Uh, as you can see here this morning, if you're able to see up front, the, the Lord's table is set once again for communion. Uh, those of you who have been with us uh, over the last several Sundays are familiar with this little journey we've been on. This is the third Sunday in a row that we'll uh, be taking communion, and I suspect we, we may pause from this next week. But uh, here today, it's before us again. And, and I'm pleased that over the last week that I have been a part of and have heard of many conversations happening about communion, about the taking of communion, conversations about what the Lord has done in, in someone's heart as they've been obedient and listening to Him and, and uh, things that were revealed to them and as they took communion seriously and allowed the Lord to search their hearts. Conversations over the, the approach that we've taken towards communion here and, uh, and even some debate as to what is the, the right heart in communion. What's the, what's the right way for us to approach it? I'm grateful for this conversation. In many ways, it's a, it's a mission accomplished, as it were, that we're considering this truly what is a sacred ordinance in his church that is something that Jesus himself said, do this, do this often in remembrance of me, that we're, that we're doing so with, with more focus and, and with intention. And as we've considered, communion is far more than the simple eating of bread and, and the drinking of the, the juice. Communion, when truly practiced, is koinonia, that Greek word that, that speaks of intimate fellowship between the members of the body of Christ. And so each and every one of us together participating in the body and blood of Jesus. Something that's truly beyond our understanding, but truth rooted in His Word nonetheless. This communion is about examining our hearts as we remember His sacrifice. And then allowing this examination, allowing the opportunity as the Lord searches your heart to produce within you necessary things, whether that be repentance or or to bring about a right perspective or or to produce joy within you as you you look forward in the act of taking communion. Of course, we know that Scripture says we proclaim His death until He comes. And so there's an element as well, not just looking back on what He's done, not just looking inward at what He is doing, but being able to look forward and to say, Lord, You're coming again. These are things that are accomplished through communion. In communion, there is a supernatural work that can take place in our hearts, individually and corporately. And my question amongst a handful this morning would be, do we want that? As you think about communion, and and not to suggest at all that that even my words shared just now are, are 
or that they accurately capture every element of communion. But as you think about these things and as you've reflected on communion yourself and to consider the significance of it and the fellowship that, that ought to be characteristic of it, do you find yourself saying, I want that. I want, I want to be a part of that. I think it's foolish when we think that we've arrived. Amen? We often do. That we're ever beyond the place of looking more intently into the Scriptures and allowing the Lord to draw us deeper. So often, I think that we settle, albeit perhaps not intentionally, but we settle for less. So often than what the Lord really has for us. We settle for copies oftentimes of the real thing. I, I'm always mindful of the, 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 the beggar, the, the paralytic there on the steps of the temple that we read about in Acts, who, who probably on the very morning that he was prepared once again to ask for, for a handout, would have been, as he asked, very content to receive what was truly just a matter of pennies, tossed into a cup once again. But there on that particular day, as recorded in scriptures, a few of the disciples were making their way up those steps. Peter, I believe, looked at this man who asked, and he told him, silver and gold, I do not have. What I do have, I give to you. Rise, take up your mat and walk. That man, that morning, do you think he had any sense that day, that that, that, that would be the day that there on the steps, he would be restored? That he would get up and walk? Or did he sit out that morning thinking, just a few more pennies? One could argue there was some contentment in that, perhaps. But I think it's a picture, oftentimes, of where we're at. To think and consider sometimes of of all that the Lord has for us. and, And to say, and I'll give you permission to say it, to say, Lord, I want more of you. I want more of you. I want to experience more of you. I want to experience more of what you have for your church in the area of fellowship and community. I think this is something that that is the case with communion. This intimate fellowship instituted by Jesus, practiced regularly by the early church, a central part of their gatherings, debated certainly by many as to how exactly it worked, but amongst all of them, regardless of their stance, considering the significance and the power of it in the life of the believer. And so then as we take to know that, that this fellowship that hopefully more and more of you are longing for, for it to be truly experienced is to allow, allow the Lord to work in our midst such that unity is achieved. That unity that Jesus prayed for, for his church. The unity that Paul exhorts us to in Scripture. And look, as we think about even the last few weeks, I know that last week in particular, some refrained from partaking, myself included. And I want you to know that lest we get hung up on that in particular, it's it's not about not taking communion. My my goal as we've considered these things is certainly not for less people to partake. And and certainly for people not to partake because they feel in a sense that they're not worthy or because there's been guilt and shame heaped upon them. Wouldn't want that at all because the fact of the matter is we're we're not worthy. We, We never are. It's only because of Jesus. That we can participate and partake. But rather for us to take it seriously. To be willing to say, Lord, I know based off of what I see in Scripture that you want unity in your church. 
You want people to to take seriously the convictions in their lives that come from the Holy Spirit. You want among your people a regular practice of confession and repentance and restoration. That's to be evident amongst us. That you have, Lord, something special for the community of believers. And so then, with hearts examined, if we give ourselves to that process, with people who have taken action on the things that the Lord's convicted you on, as He searches your heart, then we engage in this process whereby I believe the Spirit is able to work more freely in His church. And so I can say for me, as one who last week said, you know what, I, the, the Lord has, has told me clearly to refrain from taking, and I shared that with you in transparency. That I know for this week, because of that, and I'm not holding myself up here as the, as the model, as it were, but to share with you that, that I know that this week, today, as I've taken already in our first service, that I was more excited to take a communion this week than I, than I really have been at other times in my life. Because there was a sweetness in it, an excitement to partake, knowing, Lord, I listened. Lord, I listened, I tried to be obedient, and you did something. You you did something in my life. You worked, and so it gives me confidence that he's alive, and that his spirit is in fact within me, and that he is about the process of sanctifying and changing, because I know that there's nothing in me apart from him that would ever desire such things. Do we want that in our lives? Consider for a moment, I had you turn there in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians 4, specifically in verses 11 through 16, Paul gives us some insight here into the church. And hopefully as we make our way through this here, it will make sense this morning. Paul writes, and he himself, verse 11 of of Ephesians 4, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Until we all come to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Paul here is describing the type of fellowship, the koinonia that should exist within God's church. It's a wonderful thing here as we read this because we see here that Paul's saying this is about the body of Christ working together, submitting to one another, being used by God for the benefit of all. Life in Christ, being a part of the church, it's not a one-man show. It's a community. I would ask, do we know this kind of fellowship? Now, we know some of it for sure. I'm blessed by this body of believers. But as I've mentioned even here this morning, as I alluded to last week, I think there's more for us. We ought not settle and just simply say, okay, we've, we've arrived. I think we've got it all figured out. Or even last week as I asked, look around. You're to look around here again this morning and, 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 and you find different faces. Could you, could you say, man, I'm, I'm truly in intimate fellowship with each and every person here. 
That's a difficult thing for us to, to say, right? That's a, different, a difficult thing to be accomplished in this setting. It's hard in this setting, albeit this is an important one, for this is the public teaching and preaching of His Word. But it needs to go beyond this. There's an element that needs to move beyond this. This is then the importance for the church engaging in life groups, smaller groups, smaller men's and women's studies, groups of accountability, the body taking action on a meeting together and and getting together with one another and all the different things that come along with community. It's essential if we're really going to be able to, to connect in the way that God desires. And so I'd ask again, do you want that? Or differently, what if, what, if, what if today we said we're not satisfied? What if we all said we want more of what God has for us? And really began to pursue it? What might happen? Paul David Tripp, many of you are likely familiar with him. He's one of those guys who captures things in words that I find myself going, man, I wish I, why didn't I say that? Right? He writes this and it caught my attention. None of us exists in fully unified communities of faith. None of us knows Christ as fully as he can be known. And none of us is fully grown into the likeness of Jesus. For that reason, we need to joyfully submit to God's means of bringing these goals into completion in our hearts and lives. I'll pause there for a moment and just remind us then, as we we are making our way, trust me, towards Romans once again, but of the pattern that's been put before us by Paul in Romans. Paul, of course, began with our unfortunate state as sinners. People who are fallen short of the glory of God. And I I paraphrase here, but he said that we are lost. We were dead in our sins, our trespasses. Yet even when we were yet dead in our trespasses, Christ loved us. He he died for us. He showed us mercy as we see in Romans 5.8. And so we see then from that, that that God continues to work in the lives of believers, this process of redeeming and restoring, such that he's able to use all things in our lives for good, to bring necessary change, to make us more like him, to, to transform us, conform us into his image. We see that in Romans 8, 28 through 30. And Paul continues to build then on this work of God, declaring that, that as we then view all of, God, all of what God has done, as we look at the mercies of God, then our natural and right response should be to offer our lives as sacrifices to Him. To say, God, this is, this is a reasonable response to what you've done. As we see then in Romans 12.1. And from here then, remember that, that then throughout Romans 12 and 13, Paul takes the, the living out of this, the person who surrendered, And says, look, from here then, you ought to be a part of the body. Be a part of the body of Christ. Come together in unity. Learn submission and and be dominated by love for God and love for others. The process of sanctification in the life of a believer is not just conforming us to his image. But it's also about bringing us into communion. Fellowship with one another. Tripp continues, I have now come to understand that I need others in my life. I now know that I need to commit myself to living in intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. I now know it's my job to seek this community out, to invite people to interrupt my private 
conversation and to say things to me that I couldn't or wouldn't say to myself. Do we want this kind of community? Most of us, if you're honest, would say no. And those who say yes probably don't actually want it as much as they just know that they need it. And that would be true of all of us. We need this community. It's why Jesus designed it. You think it's by accident that that Jesus built his church the way that he has and gives us the instruction that he does in Scripture? That his church will not only be used when it's unified to point a lost world to him, but that he will use his church in each other's lives to be a means of that sanctification. But what if we're not participating in it? What if we're not giving ourselves to it? What if we're far too content to gather weekly into our own isolation? Venturing out often only with masks on, trying to be all the things that we think we're supposed to be. That's not what he has for us. The author of Hebrews in chapter 3 verse 13 challenges us, writing, But exhort one another daily, while it is called today lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And look, I I can say this morning as I look out at you, and this is one of the privileges of, of being in this position, is that I get to every Sunday look at all of you and your faces, and you guys are unfortunately just have to look at me, right? But I get to see all of you, and I get to see your faces, and I can say to you this morning with absolute confidence as truth rooted in the Word of God that, that He, the Creator God of the universe, loves each and every one of you. Every one of you. So much. And no matter what. And, and, and He is about the work of transforming you, Christian. And in part, He wants to use His church, other believers, to do that work. So then there must be fellowship. There must be unity. There must be intimacy amongst the body. You might ask, what does this have to do with Romans 14? And if you're familiar with the chapter and you've been with us through this last week, Paul's talking about, can you eat meat? Do you not eat meat? And what do we do with that? How does all this stuff fit together? Well, as we look at Romans 14 this morning, we began considering last week what I titled was the essentials for maintaining unity in a diverse church. And as we looked at the first half of Romans 14, we considered three areas that we need to... uh, Look at as we foster and maintain the unity that Jesus desires for his church. That is, if we want the kind of life-transforming, redeeming, Christ-centered, grace-driven community that Jesus has for us, then as we considered last week, we must first, as believers, genuinely accept other believers even when we have different perspectives. We must be committed to that. And secondly there, and this This particular point helps to ease the concern for those who may think that I'm suggesting that we adopt an anything-goes mentality in the church, that this genuine acceptance is clarified by the essential versus non-essential matters. That means that we seek to keep the main thing the main thing. That we rally, as it were, the body of Christ rallies around Jesus and the truth of the gospel and resists becoming overly distracted by some of the things that enter into the church that simply don't matter. Finally, that this genuine acceptance should be motivated by the Lordship of Christ. That is, consider who's in charge of your life. Who's in charge? Who will you stand before? 
And so when we begin to understand that, we should then be less concerned with pleasing others or addressing others' behavior and more about our surrender to Him. And let me tell you, when we're focused on surrender to Him and making sure that that we say, man, I want my life to be wholly given to Him, wholly surrendered to Him, then all of the other things really start to fall into place. And so then as we look at the latter half of this chapter in our remaining time this morning, we see some of the more practical, that is day-to-day application type things that help us in maintaining this unity that Paul writes about. In verse 13, he says, therefore let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. J.B. Phillips translates this in the following way. He says, Let us therefore stop turning critical eyes on one another. If we must be critical, let us be critical of our own conduct and see that we do nothing to make a brother stumble or fall. Imagine if you will, if that was consistently put into practice. Never a critical eye turned upon another, but only on ourselves, taking the mirror of Scripture and holding it up to ourselves and bringing us before God and saying, God, you work in my life and deal with them. What of your personal preferences? What of your legalism? Is it causing others to feel condemned or burdened? Or what of your liberty? Are you potentially leading others into sin? Paul calls us to be considerate of one another, to outdo one another in showing love. And here he says that we would do nothing to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall. Now, a stumbling block is one of those things that happens by accident. It's left in the way from carelessness. I liken it to the Lego on a child's floor. Has anyone here ever experienced the pain and agony of such things? Okay, I see a a hand went right up. Okay, good, good. It's excruciating. As far as I know, they weren't left there on purpose. But then there's the, the, the cause to fall. This is intentional. It's the tripwire. It's the thing that the person with liberty seeks to say, I'm going to flaunt my liberty to show them that all things are acceptable, that this isn't an issue. Paul says, no. Let's resolve. Let's discipline ourselves to do neither of these things. To be so thoughtful, caring towards one another, that we would say, in my life, I don't want anything whether intentionally or unintentionally, to create an issue in the life of my brother or sister because I care for them that much. Now, it may be an easy thing for us to read this, but it's an entirely different thing to put this into practice. This is no light matter, and so it is a good question to say, Paul, what's the basis for such a commitment? But as Paul does, he would answer that question. In verses, and am convinced nothing unclean of itself. Here, Paul, as it were, sides with the the meat eaters. Again, if you're joining us for the first time in this study, as to whether or not one could eat meat, whether they should eat just vegetables, and if that seems like a silly argument, it was rooted in the fact that maybe one of the possibilities was that the meat that was purchased was sort of at a discount store because it had been sacrificed to idols and a true Christian shouldn't eat something that was sacrificed to idols. Or, or maybe it was that there were Jewish believers and Gentile believers in the same church and one was holding on to the law while the other was saying, I don't, I don't even understand it. We don't know exactly what was going on, but this was the debate. Paul, though, he takes it beyond the, the focus on meat and vegetables and, and says, look, there's nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, 
To him it is unclean. Paul brings into view here the matter of conscience. And oh, what a concept today. That there would be some who would say, look, I'm convicted about this. Yet if your brother, verse 15, is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. And so here Paul says, look, it's not sinful in and of itself. But if you're interested in walking in love, if love has conquered your heart, then you're going to consider your brother and sister in Christ. And what a way for us to view one another. Have you ever thought about it this way? Often I've heard people encourage others to look at, you know, brother and sister in Christ as a child of God. That, that when we do so, we would have a right perspective. And that's certainly true. But what about looking at each other and saying, Jesus died for them. The one who I call Savior and Lord of my life, who I desire to love with all of my heart, He died for them. And He died for me, even when I didn't deserve it. So then, my response to others should be equally as sacrificial. That is the way of love. So our first practice to apply for today then is, if you're taking notes, number one would be resolve to walk in love towards others. Resolve to walk in love towards others. While we have tremendous liberty and freedom in Christ, we do. As slaves to righteousness, we are bound to walk in love. Verse 16, Paul continues, Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. It is a wonderful thing when someone comes to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen? And it's a wonderful thing too that they begin to see the world differently. And they begin to see their life differently. And, and suddenly there's, because of this, this act of forgiveness, because they know that they've been washed clean, they begin to rejoice in all that God has done for them. But it doesn't take too long for a believer to, in such joy and in such celebration, begin looking at their new life as the ultimate goal. And to begin looking at this world that they now see differently as their home, as their eternal kingdom. And it's not. What should become even more pronounced to us as we become believers is that this is not home. We are just pilgrims, as it were, passing through. There's another place for us. And so here what Paul does is he draws our attention from the things of this earth to the things of the kingdom. If Christ is your Lord, and love has conquered your heart, then you're to be concerned about kingdom matters. And you'll be accepted for it, the Word says. How many of you would like to say that you're acceptable to God and approved by men? Paul gives us the qualifications for such things. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? I ask this to you this morning, not as one who says, oh yeah, I've nailed this. More often than not, when I wake up in the morning, I hunger and I thirst for that cup of coffee. Get the day going. But all oh, the beautiful days when I wake up and I'm thinking about Him. And if I admit it, oftentimes those days where I wake up thinking about Him are those days that have been the hardest. But you wonder why sometimes He allows those things into your life, doesn't it? Paul did this. And we might say, oh, yeah, it was Paul. Oh, it'd be like Paul. And Paul knew. Paul had an understanding. Paul is one who differently than many others could say, I achieved much. 
I achieved all the things that people said, this is what you need to do to get close to God. And he said, of all these things, I count them as rubbish. They're nothing. He says in Philippians chapter 3 and throughout a handful of verses here, basically says that I would know him more. In the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, he says, I press on that I lay hold of that. That I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's many of you that are football fans. It's Sunday. The Bills are on at one, Ian. I don't know if he's in here right now. You know, when, when Paul uses this language here, the, the, to me the greatest similarity that we can see to the language that he's using is that of a, of a linebacker who's, who's, who's blitzing and he's, he's absolutely going to make a sack. And you see guys that are doing this, and they are just, man, what are they doing? They're blasting guys, throwing people off, doing everything they can to get through. And a big old lineman comes up and probably tries to stop them, right? And what are they going to do? They're going to bounce around it. They're going to shove them to the side. They're going to do whatever they can to get to that guy. And today, many people around the country will watch that and be absolutely enamored with it and scream and yell and celebrate. And what Paul's saying is that right there, that's what we're to be doing about Jesus, Are you willing to pursue him with that level of intensity and fervor? Is he the one who is in your sights? You're saying, I don't care what happens. I don't care what I'm up against. I want more of Jesus. And so I'm going to go after it with what Paul's saying. Do you hunger for that? Do you thirst for that? We do when we're living for the kingdom. When that's what we keep in view. And so our second application this morning would be, if we want to maintain unity in this church, we live for the kingdom. When you do, when you live for the kingdom, you'll be leading and living at the right level. Verse 19, therefore, let us pursue. There's this active language again. Let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Earlier in Romans, in chapter 12, verse 18, Paul writes, If it is possible as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. As much as depends on you. How much is that? I'm increasingly of the opinion that it is far more than I ever cared to admit. It was far easier for me in, in many situations and on many occasions to say, I've done what I can do. So our third practice to apply this morning and maintaining unity then is pursue peace. Do the thing that is of mutual benefit amongst the body, even to great sacrifice. Paul here, he recognizes that though the thing is pure, that we should consider the weaker brother. And here in verse 21, the word good has its roots in beautiful And when translated then as such, it drives the point home even further, saying it is beautiful neither to eat meat nor drink wine. How is such a thing beautiful? That's an odd use of the term, isn't it? It's beautiful because walking in love is beautiful. Because unity in his church is beautiful. And so you might ask, as I teased last week, how far do you go? How far are we to go? And I would say Christians are not called to limit all liberty for the sake of the difficult and pious brother or sister whose heart is not right. 
But once again, I believe that we're called to go further than what we are often inclined. The fact of the matter is, Paul spends substantially greater amounts of time addressing how we are to consider one another than he does giving us some sort of exception to the rule. If love has conquered your heart, then you ought to be acquainted with sacrifice. Truly, if love has conquered your heart, then you know the greatest demonstration of love. This has been there from the very beginning. Jesus in his death upon the cross was fulfilling everything that had come before that. God's plan of salvation unfolding from there in the garden and, and man's sin to his, his calling of Abraham and setting Abraham apart and, and making of him a people, a people who he would call by his own name, a people who he would eventually lead out of Egypt through the Exodus. And it was there in the, in the wilderness as he gave the law that he specifically said to his people, and I mention it for this reason, he says, and I paraphrase, because of what I have done for you, you do these things to others. And, and, and Paul unites us to that, that covenant with Abraham. And, and Jesus himself is the fulfillment of the Exodus. In his own departure, he brings all these things into fulfillment. And so he says of his people, if you're called by my name, if you're followers of Jesus, then you're forgiven. And forgiving, forgiven people should be forgiving. Nevertheless, we don't bend to every whim that often is argued, especially when it's argued from silence in scriptures, where someone intends to be difficult and say that, that this is a thing that must be done, yet can in no way, shape, or form support it from the word. As we begin to close here this morning, I'll share with you a story. Some of you may have heard it before, and you may be familiar with the pastor and commentator, Donald Barnhouse. He's since gone home to be with Jesus, but in 1928, Donald Barnhouse was speaking at a conference in Montrose, Pennsylvania, where about 200 young people were present. It was one day that two women came to him in horror because some girls were not wearing stockings. You can laugh at that. These women wanted him to rebuke the others. And Barnhouse says, looking them straight in the eye, the Virgin Mary never wore stockings. To which they gasped and said she didn't. And he answered, in Mary's time, stockings were unknown. So far as we know, they were first worn by prostitutes in Italy in the 15th century when the Renaissance began. Later, a lady of the nobility wore stockings at a court ball, greatly to the scandal of many. Before long, however, everyone in the upper class was wearing stockings. Barnhouse says that these ladies who confronted him were holdovers from the Victorian era, and they had no more to say. I did not rebuke the girls for not wearing stockings. A year or two afterward, most girls in the United States were going without stockings in the summer. Nobody thought anything about it. Nor, he said, do I believe that this led toward the disintegration of moral standards in the United States. Times were changing, and the step away from the Victorian legalism was all for the better. Paul does call us to consider the weaker brother, but the one with a sincere heart. The one who through fellowship and community you become aware is seeking the Lord and is struggling in an area of their life. And because it's what's demonstrated amongst the community of believers, they're willing to open up and to share. Tell others of their struggle and their burdens. And believers enter into that and bear that burden with them. Begin to pray for each other. Meet with each other. That's biblical community. Paul gives us further guidance as it pertains then even to our own conscience, saying in verses 22 and 23, do you have faith? 
Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. Here, Paul successfully brings our attention back from potentially looking at others, the weaker brother, the stronger brother, the external matters, to looking at ourselves and the internal matters. And this is really a way for Paul of encouraging us to say, Lord, what is it in my life that isn't pleasing to you? What is it in my life that you've been speaking to me about, that you've convicted me in? And rather than looking to others at what they do and what they don't do, or even in some cases, listening to a well-intentioned brother or sister trying to give me advice, might we practice seeking the Lord and hearing His voice, being led of the Holy Spirit. If there is liberty, as you seek the Lord, if there's liberty, your conscience is clean, praise God. But if you're troubled, there's conviction there. If there's uneasiness, and refrain in obedience to Christ. So number four in our application this morning would be live by faith with a clean conscience. Here's the thing about living by faith. To reiterate again that listening and hearing the Holy Spirit in our lives and being used, yes, by the Spirit in each other's lives as we open up the door of vulnerability and transparency. It's not us pounding down that door in others' lives, but living in community and allowing the Spirit to do that work. And that's a big question. Are we able to hear, study your Bibles, pray, listen, apply it? Or do we spend time just listening to everyone else over this past week around these various convictions and things that the Lord is doing, yet still so many conversations, admittedly myself, a, a part of some of them where it's more about what other people should be doing, not necessarily about what the Lord's doing in my own life, in my own heart. Yes, we're called to exhort each other. To support each other, to bear one another's burdens, to point people to Jesus, to encourage people. As we take communion, take that time seriously to say, Lord, search my heart. Not so that we can come to a place where we can say, I'm worthy to take, but that we can come to a place where we can say, I can take in a worthy manner. Because I've allowed you, Lord, to have the rule and reign in my heart. And as we do these things then for one another, then I believe we find ourselves engaging in the kind of unity that God desires for us. Amen? Here's what we're going to do with communion this morning. As you feel led to come forward and take as uh, each row is released, similarly to past weeks, you come forward and you can make your way back. But I would invite you as you, as you do to spend time in prayer, worship, but then as you return to your seats, I'd invite you to take there on your own. Whether you take as a family, if you're here as a family or uh, as an individual, or maybe you're here, you've got a friend, and however you want to do it. If you want to just pray with somebody and take, I'd, I'd welcome you to do that. And, uh, and continue to worship, and then we'll, we'll close out in prayer. Today is an opportunity for you to take in a personal way. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure that you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.